Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. Listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the Lennon and McCartney of Bigfoot, the other arguably Harrison and Star, Cliff and Bobo. The feds have now started calling me with Bigfoot reports. Have they really? That was part of my goal for doing this whole thing in Mount Hood National Forest to begin with. Honestly, uh, Mount Hood is one of the most visited national forests in the entire country. And so a lot and great Bigfoot habitat and all that sort of stuff. And I live here. So I wanted every ranger and forest service worker in Mount Hood National Forest to know that, oh, that guy from TV, he runs trips here and gets the recreational permit. I want everybody to think of me and the museum when they hear a Bigfoot story and it started happening. Um, I got a call from a Mount Hood National Forest uh, guy um, about a month ago, a little bit less about this report that came in. He says, I don't know why she reported it to us. It happened by Hepner, which is out you know, more towards Eastern Oregon. But nonetheless, I got a Bigfoot report from the feds because they didn't know what else to do with it. And when they heard about it, they thought of me. That's so great that they would actually make that call. Cause I would think the lazier thing for them to do would just be to tell the people to contact you. And so right. you would get people who were referred to you through them. But that's really kind of going the extra mile if, if the Forest Service themselves makes the call to report the, the incident. And on a slightly uh, less related note, um, I was, we, we, Bobo and I talked about this last week um, on Big, Bigfoot and Beyond here. But um, a Forest Service worker on the other side of the Cascade saw one a week ago this past Saturday. And uh, she called me as well. It took oh, her a day. but she. Uh, yeah, so that's two feds reaching out to me in the last and, month and, and what or six was that weeks. report? Was that a close range thing or off in the distance? Yeah, it was. It, it was a really good one. Yeah, it was over there, kind of north of White Salmon, on the other side of a uh, other side of the Columbia River, and on the other side of the Cascade, so up in yeah. Washington. Um, yeah, uh, basically, she was driving and saw one in the road, and it was on all fours when she saw it, and then it stood up, and uh, she saw it was a dusk, so she saw the silhouette of it rather than the details. And she estimated it about 300 or so feet away. And there you go. But um, yeah, I went out to the site for two days, actually, look, scouring the area for footprints, but couldn't come up with any. Then again, it was just dumping rain, too, though. She saw it on Saturday, and I was out there Monday afternoon, and it had rained, you know, pretty much every hour in between the two. So yeah. And plus, for that forest, you, you'd have to be, I mean, the thing would have to be walking along the edge of a creek or on a muddy road for you to be able to find any tracks. Cause you're just, you know, you're, you're gonna, you're, you're gonna see like maybe some impressions in leaf litter otherwise. But it was in between two power lines, which is pretty cool. So pretty easy to find on a map for all you guys want to check it out on Google earth and uh, not too far from a fish hatchery either, which uh, may or may not be of interest. Yeah. And so she, she was sure it wasn't a bear. Oh yeah. Yeah. She actually, she initially did think it was a bear. Um, she saw it when she first came around the corner in this long straightaway and she goes, Oh my God, that's the biggest bear I've ever seen in my life, my life. She thought it was a 600 pound black bear when she first saw it. 
Um, and then the thing stood up on two legs and she's, she could clearly see the silhouette and then she yelled, Oh my God, it's a man. And then she got a little closer and she goes, Oh my God, it's not a man. What the hell's that? You know, and then walked off the road and. Oh, excellent. And so how many occasions like that where people have, that's what I thought about again, getting them with thermal from the air, even if it's low resolution, if you get them on the move, I think you'll see that behavior of them being able to move on all fours and then alternating to being on, you know, you know, galloping on all fours and going up on two legs and running away. And just that, even if you're getting a thermal silhouette of it, I think that will be really compelling Mm -hmm. to see that, that different kind of movement. But yeah, they do go on all fours. And I think in many of the occasions where people have said, you know, they could hear the things in the brush and they know that they were, they could see into the forest enough so that they would they should be able to spot whatever it is they're moving moving around out there but they don't see anything that's because they were down low to the ground they were either crawling or they weren't all fours and i think they can move around real easily that way and they do that to hunt yeah that's something that a lot of people miss is like these things are seven eight feet tall you know and they know that they know they're easily visible so why would they expose themselves in such ways they would certainly be hiding behind things or uh, or crawling around the ground keeping a low profile about them the only thing that bothers me about that and i think that is true by the way but um, one of the things that bothers me is the lack of handprint evidence in the data set and part of, partly it's because people aren't looking for hands. They're looking for something else a little bit more recognizable. Uh, they probably wouldn't even recognize the hand if they saw it. But um, but I would think that there should be more. But it's probably a human factor, not a Bigfoot factor. Yeah, I, I think that's probably it. Because it's, I mean, just think if you were a Bigfoot and if you're walking around on ground, that would be muddy enough for you to leave tracks. That's probably not the area that you'd put your hands down if you didn't have to. You know, right, you probably right. you probably want to keep yourself as clean as you can, uh, and so that's that's a situation to be upright. And uh, it in, and when you're stalking something, that's when you're in the woods, you know, and you're not going to leave any footprints in just natural kind of wooded environment. You you have to have yeah. exposed soil. You know, and but the, to further the idea that it's a human factor, uh, probably once a week or once every other week at the least. Um, I have somebody come in the store, you know, come in the museum and go through the back and see all the displays. And I have two entire displays on hand casts, you know, um, and when they come out, they go, yeah, you know, what really impressed me was that were the handprints. I had never even thought about handprints before. And yet there they are. And I, I hear that a lot more than um, I would have suspected before I opened the museum is that, yeah, people aren't are just telling me straight out. I never even thought about the handprints before. And I think that therein lies part of the issue. Yeah. Well, I, you know, we haven't heard from Bobo. I, I wanted to ask Bobo about this. Bobo, tell me what you know about Monkey Creek up there off the 199 in Patrick's Creek Lodge up in NorCal. I've had two things happen up there. I spent a lot of time up there in the middle, late 90s and early 2000s. And one night with John Freitas, that's where I definitely noticed, well, a couple nights actually with Freitas up there was when he went to bed and started snoring really loud, he had sleep apnea. Yeah. They'd come in close, and I'm sure it was a Sasquatch. Would Well, not I say they, I think it was just one. Would circle the camp and do those kind of huff breathing sounds once in a while. Uh, late 90s, I got hired by a guy to help him. He was a survivalist. He claimed he was putting out, um, he was trying to get a hidden camp with uh, growing his own food for the Y2K meltdown <laughs> when people yeah. were, when people were prepping for that. Yeah. 
for all I know, it was a pot guard or somebody. We were hiking up uh, supplies at night, grow supplies. And when I um, had something run run around us and something sprinted down on the slope below us, and it was moonlight, but I still I couldn't see it. But you could hear like it got into the screen, you know, like that sliding rock shale stuff. Yeah. And it was able, like, normally you just slide down with it. This thing was able to keep running, like, like its legs were pumping so fast, it was able to kind of keep from sliding down too far. And then it ran into the trees ahead of us. And I'm sure that was a squatch, but I didn't see it. But um, those are the two things I had, two for sure things I had happen up on Monkey Ridge. And so that's what I noticed in the aerial photos. It looks like the only roads are on the ridges. They're not like in the bottoms. Right. Did the people who work at that lodge ever talk about any incidents around there? Not much. Like uh, one of the women that was a waitress there, she lived there for 20 years. She'd heard a few things, but she didn't really pay attention too much. And not as much as I thought. I thought there'd be a lot more reports out of there, but that is, I'm not sure if it was Monkey Ridge. It might've been where Monkey Ridge terminates into the bigger mountain, but Near there is where I heard a really good vocal. Like it's that's when I was talking about the time I heard where it sounded like the gates of hell opened. Yeah, I was with my girlfriend sitting up there, and we were sitting on the hood of her car. And I did some calls. These things came from way up, way up high on the ridge to the uh, north of us. Patrick Patrick Creek Road runs north south, and it came from the ridge like northeast of us. And it started coming up. They started coming on the mountain. It sounded like there was at least three of them it's coming down the mountain so fast, like. They must, they must have been a couple miles away. And they got covered a, um, you know, they must have covered a mile in like a minute. It sounded, it was what it sounded like. And my, I was, I was, I, my heart was pounding through my chest, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. I was super excited, a little, little scared. My girlfriend freaked out. And it was her car, and she just grabbed the keys and said, "We're, we're leaving right now." I, I couldn't blame her because it was, it sounded gnarly. But we might have been a little more north of. Monkey Ridge at that point. So is Monkey Ridge, is that like an open road that you can just drive up? No gate? When I was up there, we would drive up these uh, old logging spur roads. Yeah. That went to hunting camps. And then we'd, we'd hike up from there. Okay. All right. So there is some off. You know, because in, in certain places in the country, it, it really depends on how far away you are from big population centers. Like down here in the south, it's like... If you're up in the flank, you know, if you're up anywhere in the Big Bear area, anywhere near the cities, there's very few dirt roads that are, like, open for you to drive on with four-wheel drive. There's not many at all. Most most roads are gated by the Forest Service because they don't want people going back in there. And, like, you know, especially after, uh, you know, more people with ATVs would come around and they'd start fires accidentally because their exhaust pipes starting fires and stuff. They They... they they would just close off roads. So, but when you're far out like there, like a 199 up there in Northern California, yeah, you have logging roads, old dirt roads that just go off for miles and miles and in, in different directions. And they're they're very often not gated because they do to like go to old grandfather in hunting cabins and stuff. And for a long time, I think that's what they thought like a good part of their economy, their their vacation economy is that people like hunters coming up for the season. Uh, but I think up there, and I think at Patrick Seek Lodge, wouldn't it be more fishermen than hunters that would, like, be staying at that lodge? Yeah, and I think more just tourists just driving along the, the highway. Okay. So it's not people who are using Patrick's Creek as, like, kind of a base camp to explore the areas around in there? I don't think so. Not. I mean, there's some of that. I mean, I go by there a lot. 
Um, I know, I know Paul Edes, Dave Paul Edes did a lot of his, he was up there for years in that area, like right there, little Jones Creek and monkey Ridge area. Okay. And he thought that was like one of the more productive spots he'd been for sure. And did Paul Edes use optics? What, what, what would he do in the field? I think he was mostly doing daytime stuff. Oh, so he's looking for tracks, just trying to see yeah. if you can spot one. Yeah. yeah, that's kind of that's kind of old style way of doing it because you're just like, as we saw, you you have much better odds at night when they feel comfortable getting close to you, especially if they can't see you from a distance and they have to come and check out what's making the sounds. But doing it in the daytime, it's just like if you were to go up there and knock and and howl and stuff, they they spot you from so far away. Uh, that you, they, you know, they wouldn't have to make any sounds before they'd figure out like what you are. And I think they know too, that Sasquatches typically they well, Sasquatches, you guys would agree on this. They do make more sounds at night than they do during the day. So yeah. it's not like they don't make sounds. They don't make, they, we've heard knocks during the day. Well, yeah. we've heard vocalizations during the day, but it's much more common after dark. Like that's like when they do it. Um, yeah kind of like owls and coyotes as a matter of fact are usually more vocal after dark um but uh but but yeah so if if you're not if you're not out there at night you're if you're just you know doing stuff in the daytime and you're not equipped for the dark uh being able to see in the dark then you're not you know you're I would say you're not wasting your time but you're you'd be much more productive if you if you could see in the dark and you know it's funny with lights you know how the combination of having night vision optics having either night vision or thermal etc that's what enabled us to be able to and to be comfortable walking around in the dark because we're going to places where there are mountain lines around and you didn't want to you'd hear movement in the bushes uh, nearby and you wanted to know is there something you know bigger than a bread box that's in the woods <laughs> right nearby uh, and with a therm that's what would make you feel comfortable to know that you know what's there and what's not there so you didn't you would never feel compelled to bust out a big bright white light to kind of light up you know shine in the direction of where you're hearing stuff you know thermal optics just even if it's low resolution just makes a big difference just for that just for that because it kind of helps you to stay dark. You know what it really taught me is, uh, man, the forest is empty. Yeah. yeah. Most of the time in most places it is empty. But then, you know, how often was this? We'd go out, we'd make vocalizations. How reliable it was that we would get in the mix, we'd get coyotes to howl back at us. I mean, that was like, I, I remember it was to the point where we'd find it puzzling if we didn't hear coyotes howling back at us. Right. So we know right. that at least they're out there. And if there's coyotes out there, then we'd know that there's deer out there too, or a whole lot of other smaller animals that they could go after. But when, you know, what I know this is when you have like a couple of coyotes here and there, they can live off of, you know, small game. They can go after, you know, kind of, you know, raccoons and rabbits and things like that. But when you have bunches of coyotes, like a group of coyotes, what would what what is this the the name for? Because every animal has a a name for where uh, there's a group of them. I think I think it's a flock. A flock. Let me see. Group of coyotes. No, no, it's it, it's it's not a flock, man. I'm just kidding. It's it's a pack. Oh, a, like a, a band of coyotes. Oh, a band. It's not a pack. I thought it'd be a pack for sure. No, okay. it's the, col the collective noun for coyotes is the word you would use to describe a group of coyotes used in a sentence. You could say, look at the band of coyotes where a band is collected right. to mean the group. Right. It's know. like a murder of crows. 
Exactly, exactly. So the word is a band. So when you hear a band, a big band of coyotes, they're only going to be a big band when they are in a group to go after larger game. They're not going to be in a big band to go after rabbits. Uh, and, you know, they might be in a big band. To, they'll go after hogs, especially if they're going after like a group of younger hogs, like in this, say, in Texas or the, uh, the southeast. They're up here. If you're hearing them in the West and you're hearing a bunch of them, that's that's a group that lives off of deer. So even if you're not seeing deer, if you hear groups of coyotes responding, you've got deer in the area. Well, you know, I would suggest, Matt, that if they're in really big bands, uh, certainly that would be better to take down deer with. But that, that, to me, that also suggests another possibility, which is just a ton of food in the area, both of which those things, uh, both of those things, which would be great for Sasquatches, just a ton of rabbits, like way too many, or a ton of rodents or a ton of whatever they're going after or the deer, right? Yeah, 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 that's true. Like, because that's what we've seen in areas where, you know, the, in areas where there's a lot of or coyotes or a lot, you know, deer, there's a lot of everything uh, because yeah. there's there's enough ground, especially you know acorns. Uh, you know, a acorns is just like the the dominant thing that you, it isn't just out west. Because remember, in West Virginia, that was the one you know the place that I mean, talk about just like gnarly, just like just groves of big oaks dropping dropping acorns, and even down in Florida. You know, you have like the, the real oaky areas, the areas where, you know, a lot of, there's going to be a lot of deer. The, the acorns support, you know, a, a high deer population. They, it, when you have that, then it's supporting all kinds of other smaller animals, too. So you just have you got a lot of wildlife, but, you know, you need water. This is those are going to be in places where there's enough precipitation uh, where they don't have to go miles and miles to drink where there's like, you know, there's going to be some kind of a little stream every quarter mile or so. But isn't that the way uh, like cliff up by like where you live or, or up by where the museum is? I imagine you don't have to go more than a mile in any direction before you run into a stream. Yeah. That, you, you could find, you could find places where you'd have to go to, but the boats are few and far between. If they want water, there is tons of water available. And um, you can look at a map and see all the rivers, but what you don't see on a map are all the small seasonal uh, springs that pop out all over the place. Yeah. I mean, on my, my property alone, I have one, I have two streams that run 24 seven all year round. Uh, they trickle like in the driest parts of the year, but I've got another three um, that just appear. And in fact, I have one on the top of my property that, um, is not only seasonal, I don't know where it comes from or where it goes to. It just kind of comes out of the ground at one place, goes underneath the road and a culvert, um, flows on the surface for 20 yards and then disappears. And there are no streams below it anywhere wow. like between, between me and the river. So I don't even know where the hell that one goes, but I have it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Water is abundant. And for sure. do, do you have a topography like you have in the Cascades on the Washington side up by like Skookum Meadow and Indian Heaven uh, Wilderness where you have like kind of Alpine Plateau that's going to be just chock full of berries in the summertime? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. The place all around uh, Timothy Lake, for example, is just nothing but that. It's the crest of the Cascades. It, it, it's at about, you know, 38 to 4,500 feet. Um, there are some taller peaks around, but, you know, it, that kind of averages in that range there. And that place uh, from second half of July, some years, all the way into October, some other years, um, chock full of huckleberries. 
Oh, wow. And other berries, any, any berry you'd want, basically, that grows naturally up here. You could find plenty of them up there. And, and those are just, the in the summertime, those are the primo areas because you're going to get so many deer, so many things up there. And I think the Bigfoots are going after the berries themselves, and they're going after the animals that are going after the berries. But it's a big, it, it's just such a big berry festival at those high elevations uh, at the height of summer. But they wouldn't stay up there uh, through the winter. They'd come down slope, uh, just like kind of everything else. And that's where it's always been kind of hard to then predict where they go, like, you know, in the wintertime. Like, you know, where if they're going to get out of the cold, where are they going to go? And and some of the only places that I, you know, on the West Coast that, that are reliable areas where it's like on the land, it's cold. Then when you get close to the coast and it's not frozen, like in the Redwoods, you get closer to the coast, they're more likely to be down there if it's like, if it's if it's just freezing cold further inland, uh, they they can they can get relief from that cold if they get near the coast. And I imagine too, it's it's just you know Mount Hood, etc. You can come down far enough where you can get out of the deep snow, uh, and uh, especially if you're talking where you're only going to get a few inches of snow on the ground, that shows snow is shallow enough so that the deer and everything else can kind of dig through it. Yeah, I think a lot of the valleys, even deeper in the Cascades, um, drop down to such a level where the elk and deer can winter there all, you know, all season long, not see one human being, and not have to deal with more than six inches or a foot of snow. Um, and if you know any Bigfoots or other animals want to get really out of the snow, you know, the Willamette Valley down in the valley floor, which is you know, of course, three or four hundred foot elevation, but for the most part, it doesn't really get snow. And they can come down and hang out just outside the farm fields, um, you know, raid this, you know, uh, um, raid this barn for horse food or whatever it's after and go by and take a couple of handfuls of dog food. Or they can do that all night long and be chock full of food by morning and then just go two miles up slope, find some nice place to chill in the woods and repeat the next thing the next night. Just raiding people people uh, food and livestock stuff would definitely see them through the winter. Yeah, absolutely. And what about the the Mount Hood Highway, which is the highway that goes from Portland up to by where you're at? Um, um, yeah, Highway 26. Highway 26. Uh, now, uh, when you're driving on that, how often do you see deer? Some, uh, some. I, I see a lot more deer on the side roads that parallel it. Okay. Um, like uh, I, I drive Marmot Road a lot. Marmot Road goes from um, Lolo Pass Road, or you know, well, I don't know. That's not really true. Marmot Road parallels the 26. But it's in between Highway 26 and Bull Run Watershed, which is, I think, the key to the Sasquatches in this area. It's an off-limits watershed of many, 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 many thousands of acres. No one's allowed in it, and there's Bigfoot reports all around it, and a few from within, from the waterworks guys that want to talk about it out loud. But yeah, so Marmot Road drives along there. I see a lot more deer out there than I do on Highway 26. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, especially you got an area. If, if there's no entry, no hunting, that that's going to be a place where they're going to feel safe. And they'll always be kind of an anchor population there. But yeah, I you got to come up sometime, Matt. We'll have an event at the museum with you, and uh, we'll take you bigfooting for a few days, and yeah, hang out at the house. Oh, It'll that'd be, be fun. lovely. Come up. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I absolutely want to do that. That would be definitely very fine. Because uh, I know you're, you're you're very fortunate. You you made the move up there, and for the people who are listening, Cliff is from Southern California, and, and he Long made Beach. The, Long Beach, and he made the big move up north. Uh, like a lot of people, like L.A. was getting too crowded, uh, and Bobo kind of did the same thing, moved up to Northern California. But uh, 
yeah, I admired the fact that you just like were able to kind of relocate and start a new life up there and kind of bring, uh, you know, whatever sensibility you're bringing from Southern California up to Northern Cal. And one of which is the extreme appreciation for Bigfoots, which I think, you know, I think for a lot of people up there, not everybody, of course, but I think so many people up there just kind of take it for granted. Like, okay, if there's Bigfoots up here, okay, well, then there's Bigfoots up here. And we're coming up just like saying, yeah, but it's the coolest thing in the world that there's Bigfoots up here. You know, <laughs> you should be doing something with it. Have you guys noticed on the BFRO report submissions? Because I know just from my personal Facebook page, I'm getting so many, I'm getting way less reports from the West Coast compared to the rest of the country now. Oh, yeah. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. We get reports from, in the past, in the 70s, you would have assumed that 90% of the reports would be for the Pacific Northwest. But that's, you know, as we realized as the years went on and as the internet, more information started to come in through the internet, we saw that 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 uh, that perception of it being a Northwest thing was because the researchers who were researching it were in the Northwest. The people who were making documentaries and stuff were in the Northwest. And they, you know, you'd have rare exceptions like in Arkansas and Texarkana with Boggy Creek. Uh, but... Uh, now, yeah, the reports, they, they come in from Ohio and Wisconsin and Oklahoma and Texas. And uh, yeah, so many more reports from back east. And I think a, a lot of it is Midwest and East Coast, you have a lot more hunters. You have a lot more people who are kind of out in the woods. I, I don't know what it is about out west. I mean, people, the people who are there in, in, on the West Coast, they enjoy the outdoors, but they have particular activities that they're going out for, and it's not usually hunting. They'll go out mountain biking or hiking or skiing, etc., uh, etc., et or horseback riding, etc. They're not. There's not as high a percentage of them that are actually out hunting and walking around and looking through the woods like you do have in the Midwest and Eastern states. And that's what's going to yield a lot more encounters and track finds and people hearing them. But in terms of the reports, I mean, I look at. I mean, today I looked through probably about 30 raw submissions to the flats, went through them and was checking them off, reading through them. And, you know, you know, a lot of them were likely misidentification. They just heard some sounds that they hadn't recognized before. They said they've never heard anything like that. Uh, they're hearing high pitch this and like kind of a growly howl. And I, I, my reflex now is to say, okay, those are likely misinterpretations. Yeah. Uh, if there's some description of it that kind of sets it apart, like if it's a low moaning howl, then I'm more likely to kind of tentatively classify it as a class B. But so often it's likely misidentification. And there's a lot of bogus reports. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, you could tell it's a lot of kids writing in and just like them saying they found some stick structure and they thought they heard some movement in the woods and just like really were like people who so desperately want to report something, but don't have anything really substantial to report. So it's maybe, you know, it's maybe one out of 30 that we're getting are what I, you know, would be a class A, uh, a good class A where they had a good visual encounter. You know, that's kind of the way it's always been. That's why we have, you know, over well over 60,000 raw submissions, but you'd have to pare that down a lot before you get to, you know, just pure class A's. Because even the ones that we publish, most of them are very compelling class B's where they didn't hear it, but they had something, they had a couple of them walking around the tent and and throwing rocks uh, and stuff like that, where, you know, probably wasn't some other kind of animal, but still they didn't see it. That's interesting though. Um, 
That's interesting that you say 60,000 or so raw reports and you, you just kind of threw a number out, you know, 30 to one, you know, class B ambiguity to like good class A's. Well, that right there, if those numbers are even close, and I know no, that no, you no, just no, kind no. of threw let, it let out. Let me say this. You know? No, 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 no. Just th if we get 30 reports in, let's say one out of 30 is a class A, but maybe 10 of those will be class B's. So there it's like when you pare it down, you get, you get one out of 10 that are either class B or a only one out of 10 are class A. The rest are so decent class B's. Is there a way on flat so you can find out how many class A's have been published? That'd be an interesting statistic to look at. Yeah. In, in the flats you see, well, you see the totals for how many are reported per state. How many, excuse me, how many are posted per state? Oh, uh, uh, okay. Yeah. And, but no, then we, we don't have a filter that would separate the class A's from the class B's. So I'm just doing that off the top of my head that there's, yeah. you know, one class A, you know, there's, there's 10 class B's for every one. It may be better than that. It may be, it's somewhere between one out of five and one out of 10. I can tell you that mm -hmm. in terms of what I'm posting, what I'm publishing for the, for the public to see, which I think are solid reports from credible witnesses. And there's an awful lot of, an awful lot of people who honestly think they may have found something, but that when they're talking about, you know, finding one track uh, and they think they can see toes, they think they can see an impression that's bigger than their boot. I mean, how many times have we heard about that? And then we get photos and we just go, well, that's just like water running through and creating kind of a foot shaped little, you know, impression. People very often, if they're reporting tracks and, and they've got photos to go along with it, the photos are not impressive at all. And so, and especially when they're talking about a single track where they don't see clear toes, I just like, no, I, I don't even count that. Ideally is mm. several tracks where you can clearly see toes in at least a few of them, whether or not they have, you know, in the report that the people tell you, you know, they, they tell enough about themselves so you know that you're, you're not, it's, it's, it's somebody who's kind of introducing themselves and not just uh, uh, where they're kind of being vague about it where they're really giving the full details on it. Uh, I, I obviously, I take those more seriously, but there's, there's plenty of people who are just throwing stuff up where they think it's just going to appear on the public website, like automatically just because they submitted it. And I, you know, when they're doing it for that reason, they, they, they are probably frustrated to learn that, no, no, things don't get reported automatically. They don't, they don't get posted publicly automatically. And even there's plenty of good ones that are, that are class A that we'd have to, you know, we'd, I'd have to really dig down into flats uh, to find that nobody's ever looked at because uh, we don't have enough people. Like, for example, in Idaho, we've got tons of reports from Idaho that are open and not investigated because we don't have anybody in Idaho that, that, that wants to systematically go through those reports to find good witnesses. And, and there's enough just in Idaho where, I mean, my God, you could do a whole series just in that state. Uh, but, you know, it, and it ends up being the Washington people. There's a lot more Bigfoot investigators in Washington. Well, they will look into Idaho reports and occasionally, you know, submit those for posting. But it's like, you know, they investigators usually want to check out and investigate reports that are in areas that they might go to. And yeah. if you're an investigator in Washington, it's like, why would you go all the way over to Idaho? You know, when you've got areas in, in areas galore in, in, in Western Washington and in the blues and then up by Colville and, you know, in North of Spokane, there's just so many more accessible areas to you.
So what other state besides Idaho would you say might be an unsung hero of Bigfooting, which is like underrepresented in the data set? Well, Pennsylvania is a big one, but they do have a lot of there. There is a lot of people that are interested in Bigfoot stuff in Pennsylvania. Uh, mm -hmm. But still, there's just there's an extraordinary amount of I mean, reports. That's like Pennsylvania is like the Washington state for back east. There's just tons of it's right at the right latitude where you've got a lot of forest. Uh, you've got like more forest than farms. You've got a lot of hilly terrain. You've got a lot of oaks. You've got a lot of wildlife. Cliff, you and I went out there, and we were in an area that wasn't particularly wasn't particularly dramatic yet. There was action in there. Yeah, uh, by, Butler by, County, Pennsylvania. Yeah, by the mushroom mines. Yeah, the um, the home of my future wife. Had I known it then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that wild. area was it's and there's a lot of wildlife. There's a lot. There's a lot of just like you know you have population out there, but there's a lot of woods in between. And uh, it, it's, you know, it supports a lot of deer and, and a lot of other, and there's bears and a lot of other stuff. So let me think, what other areas? Ohio, we've all known for a long time, has a lot. Wisconsin has a heck of a lot of reports. Yeah. Huh. I get a uh, lot out of there. North Carolina still gets a lot of reports. Kind of all, you know, the states that, that have, you know, some part of the state that's, that's bordering on the, you know, the high Appalachians, there'll be a lot of reports from in there. Florida is really covered pretty well. Uh, and we did get, you know, because when we first started doing expeditions in Florida, we were talking to witnesses and checking out locations that have been kind of accumulating for kind of decades before that. Uh, but in terms of recent stuff, there isn't a lot of recent stuff that's happened around in Florida. And, you know, one of our best places, remember the bridges yeah, of like Quincy, yeah. that property. Um, after they had a lot of activity until they had this gnarly uh, hurricane come through and it just demolished the woods. It just like, <clears throat> it tore down so many trees and they said they didn't have a lot of stuff happening after that as if it like changed the patterns of where the animals were going. And, you know, and I, I could see that happening if, you know, if you have an area full of trees and all of a sudden there's just like, there's brush damage and stuff all over the place. And the deer aren't moving around as easily, you know, through the area as they used to. Uh, but yeah, they, they don't have as, as far as I know, they don't have the action there that they used to have really consistently. Well, you know, Idaho, um, Meldrum was telling, I think maybe us about this or me. Certainly I, I got it from Meldrum, but I thought maybe we were all there. He was saying that the panhandle of Idaho, where it borders Montana there, is actually one of the world's only inland rainforests. Uh, temperate rainforest. It, apparently, that area gets almost as much precipitation as the Olympic Peninsula does. And you know, it's in the panhandle that the bulk of the reports come from, uh, in the Idaho reports go. that we have. And mm -hmm. and they and those again, they tend to be better reports than the average ports you'd get like out of like Oklahoma, uh, you know, or Missouri, or you know, a lot of the Midwestern states where you have. There's a lot of just people either making jokes or, or just sending in just bogus reports to see if they can get their county listed. Uh, but yeah, the Idaho's just they 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 tend to be from hunters, more mature people, and they just tend to be higher quality. Hmm. So anyway, that that's a good area, and we're still getting them from from I don't know Bobo if you saw we got a great report in from like the Lost Coast area. I've never had anything happen down there. I've spent some time down there. I've I used to hike into this spot we'd surf down that's directly west of where he's talking about. Yeah. And um, it's a remote hiking-only spot. 
But uh, dude, that dude, there's a huge territory in there with nobody. Yeah, and there's that reserve. There's a uh, you get close to the coast. I think it's called the King's Reserve. King Range Conservation Area. That's it. Yeah, and so the the best stuff that he heard was from in there. And he yeah. said he had to get through a couple of locked gates in there. He got permission to go through a couple of locked gates to camp in there. And he heard really good knocks from the hillside, you know, and knocks and then uh, things that are answering to, you know, knocks and then things replying to the knocks from the other hillside. But real good, like, baseball bat on trees, sort of loud, bang, bang, bang. You know, further inland, he heard, like, big, you know, long wailing vocalizations. But when I still, when I hear about vocalizations, I just... I have to keep in mind that so often people are misinterpreting, you know, coyotes can make some really gnarly, weird howls and screams uh, that I think very often people are misinterpreting coyotes. Uh, they're hearing coyotes that they just don't, that don't sound like regular coyote calls. Uh, but knocks are different when they're hearing the big bang loud. Uh, and there are some place like, yeah, that, that preserve that you're talking about. There's no people down in there doing that. Wow. And there's no other animals down there doing that. So that's more likely to be good squatches. And that's kind of like, you, you, you know, that's the sort of rainforest area where the ocean is going to maintain the temperature year round, a, a fairly stable, you know, it's not going to snow in the winter and it's not going to get super like, like over a hundred degrees in the summertime. Like it would, I think Cliff, even up by where you are, I bet you it probably gets over a hundred degrees up there in the summertime sometimes. Right. Rarely, although um, I'm a little more acclimated to the Pacific Northwest now. A 90 degree day feels like 110 to me now when I live in Southern <laughs> California. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it gets 90 in the valley floor, but that's why you go up top. You know, that's in the course the Sasquatch reports come from higher elevations or north slopes of those deep valleys during that time of year. Yeah. But as we saw, the problem with like doing a TV show and places like that, and this would apply to doing a long term research project. It's the fact that it is a rainforest that you've got all that the you know the issues with water, not only water getting your gear wet, but also just the sounds. I mean, how it just like if all the trees are dripping, it sounds like a million leaky faucets, and it's it's you know, it's it's real hard to to pick out sounds in the distance. Um, so there's just there's complications when you get closer to the coast. Uh, but but yeah, so but down in that atoll area, that was a place we've never done an expedition in there before. Uh, and I don't think, I think Bigfooters like Bobo, the pe sort of people, you know, they, they wouldn't go in there for Bigfoots. Typically. Yeah. It's, it's a long drive to get out there. Yeah. Yeah. You'd have there's, to. There's no, uh, there's no stores anywhere near there. I mean, you're, you're pretty deep and, uh, Sinkion road that goes where the highway, if you look on the map where highway one turns north on in Mendocino. All the way from there to Shelter Cove, there's only one road access point. There, there's one dirt road that runs through there that goes into that conservation area from below, but it was closed for a couple of years from slides and just slides. It's, it's yeah, You have to have four-wheel drive with clearance. You usually need come-alongs. And uh, is that the one that comes off the 101 into Bull Creek and then Honeydew and Petrolia? No, it's it's south of that. So you're talking about like edit, uh, you know, down towards Shelter Cove. It's way south of Shelter Cove. It's like where he's at is um, 12, 14 miles south of Shelter Cove, then in about four miles. 
Yeah, so that's that's also super remote. It doesn't look like it's as big uh, of a range, big as mountainous terrain is that King Range National Conservation Area. That looks a lot more mountain mountainous, and they're closer to the coast, like north of Shelter Cove. Oh, right, those are the highest coastal peaks in the lower 48. Are they really? Yeah, King's How- Peak is 4,100 feet. Oh, really? Okay, so you got you got pretty you know decent sized mountains in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's rugged. I mean, that's real rugged terrain through there. Yeah, King Peak, and there there's hardly any roads in there. It's called the Lost Coast for a reason. Damn. <laughs> yeah. And there's some, there's people scattered in the North Lost Coast, like north of the Shelter Coast. I mean, it's remote, and there's definitely miles with no one there. But there's a lot more people scattered throughout there. But you go south of Shelter Cove, down below Whitethorn, down towards Fort Bragg, that whole section of the Lost Coast. There's nobody down there besides like Whale Gulch and a couple little couple little pockets. I mean, like you know, maybe three or four houses. But then you get in for miles, miles. It's just, it's like um, several hundred thousand acres of private timberland. I always say I'm gonna hit that spot up, and I, I just, I never do. I, I don't know why I don't. I should. Well, as you said, it's just like that's that whole stretch of the just coming down the 101. You know, you're way far south of Humboldt Redwood State Park. Uh, and there's just those little towns along 101, but it's it's such a trek just to go through there, and then it's another whole trek from the 101 to get out toward the coast. So you'd have to gas up, and then you know pay you know pay attention to your gas tank because you're uh, you're 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 not going to get I, you know you're not going to get gas in Whitethorn. That's a serious expedition where you got to be prepared. Yeah, Brandon Tennant came up from the south from the Mendocino Highway 1 entrance, and he went in there one night, him and uh, Bill, and they spent the night there one night, and they got some great screams from down there. Really? And that was south of Shelter Cove? They they hit the slide area from the south, so they, I guess they couldn't go any further. You would have needed, like, a rock crawler or something, but, I mean, there's just nobody—there's literally nobody in there. And is that National Forest— uh, most of it's private timberland. I mean, there's state, there's state, there's a state park down there, Needle Rock. That's um, you can you can hike, and there's a there's a they just finished the trail, the lost uh, the Lost Coast Trail, a couple of years ago. But you can hike south. You can drive as far as you can drive south out of Whitethorn. You can hike into that zone along a trail that's not heavily used at all. Like hardly anyone uses it. And it's beautiful country and. Uh, it's rugged and remote, and there's a lot of food in there. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is the what's called the Matoli River Watershed. Yeah, Matol. Matol. Is that how you pronounce it? Okay. Yeah. I was pronouncing Matoli. That's an area that report made me very curious about that area and made me reflect on, like, why. And I think the reason, you know, we never went in there because it was just much easier operating out of, like, Arcata and and going north along the 101 and Oric and that accessibility just made the difference. Exactly. We've been hearing a lot more when Cliff and I have been traveling around the country doing those conferences. We've been getting a lot more dogman stories. Do you guys get those of the BFRO submitted? We, we get people who submit reports and who mention that there's dogman reports as well. I mean, dogman sightings as well. And maybe it's just my prejudice, but I, I've always just thought of those dogman things as just as misinterpreted Bigfoot sightings. I, I've never taken them seriously as 
there being a separate cryptid because they're just there isn't the history of uh, the you know you you don't have reports all the way up through the past century of dogmen like you do of Bigfoots, and you're talking about something that it looks like a, it would look like a Bigfoot in every respect except pointy ears and a snout, you know. <laughs> right. uh, we, but we got ones we got ones that are definitely not that like they're for sure some I don't think they're like a like a you know species that's evolved over time. I think it's some kind of paranormal type situation, but I mean, they're definitely not, these things that people are seeing are definitely not Bigfoots. It isn't through the reports to us, but I've heard more talk about Dogman stuff over the past couple of years. And I know there was some guy who started a Dogman research website. Uh, and, uh, but, and that's like always in the upper Midwest, uh, yeah. that like Wisconsin, Michigan, around in places where you, where I'm hearing, you know, Minnesota, where I'm hearing about Dogman stuff. Right. But Are uh, there any other uh, other than Bigfoot sort of things that you'd give credence to? Um, and I'll go on the limb, you know, like UFOs or ghosts or, you know, lake things. Well, I think ghosts exist. I do think the ghosts are real, and I think UFOs exist. Surely just on the basis of the number of people who report them. Uh, yeah, I'm with you on both those things. Exactly. And so I, and I've seen UFOs before on two occasions. I think I've seen a UFO once it was in Wyoming and once it was down here in the mountains of Southern California. Uh, I've yet to have a ghost encounter though. I wish I would, uh, but I, I'm not going into haunted houses that often, but, uh, yeah. Having had one or two of those things, Matt, you don't want one of those. Do they're I not? Okay. <laughs> no, 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 they're, no, they're not cool. They're not cool at all. <laughs> okay. Well, then maybe I, I would the wait. Yeah. Giant eight men scare me far less. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyway, no, I haven't. We just don't receive like UFO and and reports that are related to UFOs. We don't get we've never gotten many reports that are connecting UFOs and Bigfoots in in uh, to the same area. Uh, I mean, unless they're talking about they said they had a sighting and then they've heard people have seen like weird mystery lights on the mountainside. I mean, every once in a while, but you're not hearing like reports you'd hear out of Pennsylvania about seeing them like Bigfoot's dropped off by UFOs, you know, you know, unfortunate, (laughs) which makes me think that that a lot of the reports that were collected back then were just like guys who were, you know, uh, aspiring authors who wanted to put together like an an interesting book of, of interesting phenomena. And they would just take in and believe, you know, the more sensational the report, the more they wanted to publish it. Rather than than really judging its you know its credibility and 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 being able to talk directly to the witness as opposed to a second or third hand story, which you know and that's with the BFRO I you know and it's funny because a lot of the reports that that I classify I classify a lot as Class C, which are somebody reporting something that they heard from somebody else, uh, but they yeah. weren't the direct witness. Yeah, we get plenty of those, and I just put them as Class C, so that they're in there and they can be referenced. Because, of course, if we're going into an area, we want to know all the information that's coming out of there. Uh, but you, you can't, you know, I, I wouldn't publish a book uh, of, of Class C reports because they're just, you know, you, you want it directly from the horse's mouth. Right. Yeah. Hey, listen, guys, I do have to go now, but uh, it, it's been lovely. Uh, <laughs> it's good to hang out, man. It's been a long time since the three of us were all in the same place chatting. So this has been great. Thanks for coming on. Hey, I really appreciate it. And we will do it again sometime. 
Thank you, Matt. I hope so, Matt. All righty. Very good. Have a good night. All right. You too. Right. Talk to you all later. Later. Matt, we had a coup there, Cliff. I feel like we really scored on that one. Oh, I'm so happy to have Matt on. And I really do mean that. It's been a long time since we three have gotten together just to talk and hang out. And, you know, we live in geographically different places, so this is as best we can do for now, but it still felt good. He's always got something interesting going on. He's always got something new he's heard. Um, he's always, you know, cutting edge on the technology. Like you always say, he's an underrated squatcher. Oh, yeah, he really is. He, he's contributed a ton to the field. I mean, historic tons. He, he has earned his place in the history books already just with the BFRO and the efforts that uh, that whole group has done. And he's, he organizes all that. He runs it. He manages the whole thing. And that's a huge full-time job as it is. And plus he is, he's super smart. He's always willing to try experiments. Um, he's refining what he thinks about these things all the time. I think people see that through this interview. We just do with them, you know, like, that's the Matt when people go like, man, because, you know, the show they edit him, they want to create controversy and, you know, have a villain or whatever it is, you know, so he got, and he did it to himself sometimes, but that was sure. the guy that we, when we talk about, we're like, oh, Money Thinker's awesome. Like, we love hanging out with him. Like, they, I think they got a taste of what we were talking about, why we, we love the guy so much. Well, Bobo, thank you so much for that pleasant surprise of having Moneymaker on. I know we've been trying to get him for a couple of weeks or a couple of months now, and uh, to succeed, that made my night. So thank you very much. Till next time, be safe, have fun, and be squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 